to yet another Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, set dressers even, costume designers, composers, uh, authors, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. And we've been doing a lot of talking to people this year, actually over the past few years. Um, but we have a, fu a fun show today. I went with a fun theme for today's show after the sorrows that we've had over the past week. Uh, my wonderful engineer Pam and I were just talking about that before the show. I mean, we lost Tony Dow last week uh, in a little kerfuffle uh, over his passing. But we lost Tony. Then we lost sports legend, the greatest basketball player in basketball history, Bill Russell. Uh, and this comes from a 76ers fan. So um, Boston, he was the best. And... Then we get the tragic news about Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura, Star Trek. She was, she broke barriers. She broke through glass ceilings. She was an ambassador for NASA. Her efforts to encourage girls, women, women of color into, before STEM became fashionable, Science, uh, you know, the whole science, technology, math idea. She was the one who was there at the forefront encouraging women, girls, and women of color to go into the sciences, to go into the space program. Um, Nichelle Nichols and her activism and her championing of women and of African-American women it was unparalleled unparalleled. I had the absolute privilege to interview her on a red carpet a number of years ago for a small little indie film called True Loved. Um, also starred Alexandra Paul, Vernon Wells, uh, and other a few other people. And it was a teen um, L LGBTQ film. And here she was standing up uh, and speaking out, she was an incredible woman, always with a smile on her face and one of the greatest laughs around. Uh, I actually am going to dig out that interview this week and uh, and pop it up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But no sooner do are we adjusting to that than we get word that Pat Carroll, the legendary, the phenomenal Pat Carroll, most of this generation, you know her as the voice of Ursula in The Little Mermaid. I know her from her years of work in television. Um, she was hilarious in With Six You Get Egg Roll, starring Doris Day and Brian Keith, playing a best friend. She's one of those great character actresses. But I think my generation, the baby boomer generation, uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, our first big introduction to Pat Carroll was as Prunella, one of the ugly stepsisters in the incomparable Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella 
starring Leslie Ann Warren and Stuart Damon that was on television in the 60s. Pat Carroll was phenomenal, a force to be reckoned with, a Tony nomination in her first performance on Broadway. And here's a tidbit for a lot of you who remember her as Prunella in Cinderella. She actually was in Cinderella on the stage, and she played the fairy godmother in that version. And interestingly, Olympic diver Greg Louganis starred as, the, as Prince Charming. Uh, so there's some trivia there for you. But I want to personally extend my condolences to Pat's family, uh, Tara Carsey and her daughter Katara, whom I know, who has been gracious enough to be on our show uh, talking about a film that she did, that she wrote and starred in, BFFs. And that was Pat, her mother's final on-screen appearance. Uh, she got to be in a film her daughter wrote and on screen with her. So my deepest condolences to Tara and her, and her sister Carrie and the whole Carroll family, as well as to the Nichols family. Um, just this was a weekend not to be believed. Um, hopefully... We'll go a few weeks, if not months, without any more sadness hitting the industry and the world. Because these were people that, not just a niche group who knew who they were, all of these individuals were global, global legends. Uh, Very few people can say that. But all four of these individuals that passed over over the past 96 hours all fall into that category. We are blessed to have a legacy left by each of them, uh, and we will collectively mourn their loss. So with that in mind, I decided we had to have a happy theme for today's show. And happy and fun is what we're going to do now. Uh, I'm so excited at the midpoint of the show Genevieve Adams is going to be joining us live to talk about her, her film, Simches and Sorrows. Uh, I got to tell you, it is funny. It's fun. It is a delight to watch. She stars in it. She wrote it. She directed it. Um, and she is a, an atheist non-secular. She's an actress, grew up, went to a Catholic school for 13 years, and now she's engaged to a Jewish man who wants her to convert to Judaism before they get married. Oh, and she's pregnant uh, going through this. This is, it's a really fun romp, but at the same time, it tackles, you know, questions and issues. Uh, you know, of older generations that would say you, you have to, you can only marry within your religion. You can't marry outside. A Catholic and a Jew can't marry. Well, you watch some of the reasons why the old world had this mentality uh, with different philosophies and uh, different customs. Uh, 
I, I saw it play out in my German family with my grandparents. Uh, and, you know, and when my one brother, he married a good Catholic girl, um, German Lutherans, you don't mix with, with good Catholic girls. And in Simkas and Sorrows, you know, Catholic schoolgirls should not be marrying Jewish boys. But she wants to, she wants to convert. And it is, it is fun. There is some sadness. There is joy and sorrow. And Genevieve's going to, I'm sure she's going to tell us all about that. And the contrast and a lot of the wonderful Hebraic and Yiddish terms that we get and customs throughout the film. Uh, so I'm very excited that Genevieve's going to be joining us at the midpoint. But first, a film that you have to see to believe. My old school. I know you've seen all the posters and ads for it with Alan Cummings sitting there in a classroom with a chalkboard behind him. Um, John O. McLeod uh, had the ultimate thrill of going to the Beardson Academy in Glasgow, Scotland, growing up uh, in 1993. And while he was there, there was an, a fellow student named Brandon Lee. Uh, this is the story of Jono's class and Brandon Lee at the Beardston Academy. Uh, a true story. This is a documentary. You don't think it's a documentary because it is so hilarious. Uh, but it's a documentary. It's a true story uh, of a mysterious student named Brandon Lee who may or may not who his, be who his classmates and teachers believe him to be. Mixing, reuniting with his classmates uh, from 1993, Jono does interviews with all of them, gets their perspectives on this story, which made the news. It was all over Glasgow uh, back in the day. This whole thing, it was one of the greatest frauds ever perpetrated. And interviews them, but then he didn't want to film about with talking heads. So then he brings in animation. The animation is crisp. It's fun. It's very 90s. Brings in a pro music that mirrors the, the period and goes back and forth as we learn about Brandon Lee. Uh, and then there are a lot of surprises, including some archival footage. But the real technical achievement of this documentary uh, my old school is Alan Cumming, Cumming plays Brandon Lee. Well, the thing is, Brandon Lee didn't want to be on camera, so Brandon Lee recorded his interviews. Alan Cumming then lip syncs all of the dialogue, all of Brandon Lee's actual interview. So we're hearing Brandon Lee's voice, but we're seeing Alan Cumming. This is so well done. You just you're you're gobsmacked watching the technical acuity of the film as well as just the story on its own. It's fun, it's fabulous, and I had so much fun speaking with John O. McLeod, the writer, director, and former student who lived this tale. So without any further ado, 
take a listen to my interview with John O'McLeod talking my old school. Well, hello, John O. How are you? Hey, Debbie. I'm all good. Thank you. Well, I have to say, this film, it has to be true. And it just proves the old adage, truth is stranger than fiction. Because you couldn't make anything this hilarious up in your wildest dreams. Yeah, try having it happen, right? <laughs> I'm watching this and, and watching, get to about 20 minutes in, and we're meeting all these people, and then all of a sudden we have, and it's beautifully, the animation is spectacular. And it's like, okay, this is this is pretty fun, you know, what's what's going on? And then we get to the weekend away, and I just about fell out of my chair. When, when secrets start coming out and the animation, it just becomes even more vibrant and alive and the voicing is to die for. And then you are, you cannot look away from the screen. You are spellbound by Brandon Lee and his antics. What a feature film debut, Jono. Wow, thank you. I th- yeah, I, th- I think I made it work for you. Okay, that's good. You're my... You definitely made this work. And number one, how many people even want to go back and remember high school, especially a story like this with a classmate like this? I mean, I had guys that were in school with me that ended up in juvenile detention. And nobody has thought about them in 45 years or so. But <laughs> Can I make a film about them? Oh, of course. I need <laughs> I need my next project. Getting thrown into juvenile detention? Yeah, I think that works. I, I just, I always wanted to make an entertaining film. To me, this this story, this thing that happened <laughs> in my high school class was actually the ultimate high school movie. It's the plot of every high school movie that I love. It's Mean Girls with Clueless. It's a stranger arrives in class and things will never be the same again. So, yeah, I know I always, I, you know, I love movies like The Tinder Swindler and um, See Against the Strangers and The Imposter and all that, but in my heart of hearts, I want, I was making a high school movie and um, I wanted that kind of warmth and connection. And certainly when I, having done all the interviews with my classmates and experienced that thing myself of reconnecting with my high school class, um, I guess that's what's been captured on film. You really do capture that and... You, and you mentioned a key word, warmth, because that really comes through. The warmth among your classmates, going back and revisiting this experience years later, there is a great warmth and camaraderie and friendship that we see unfold on screen. And that, I thought, was so touching and really an important key to telling this story. But I'm very curious, when you came up with the idea to tell this bizarre personal experience and you had to reach out to your pri- to your former classmates, did you meet with any resistance? What was their reaction to you wanting to tell this story and to interview all of them about it? I mean, the people that you see on film uh, said yes. Yeah. But for all those people that said yes, <laughs> there was people who, who very much said no. And, and instantly I was cast back to my teenage self being rejected by the cool kids. 
So it was really challenging to push on through and keep con- keep trying to reach out to everyone when um, a few of the cool kids told me where. Um, but I did, and uh, I'm so glad that I did actually because it's it, for for a movie that's about kind of going back and, and re- reconnecting with high school. And um, for me, I kind of ended up reconnecting with my 16 year old self. You know, I left school and never looked back. It was uh, it was not the nicest experience for me being in this prison-like atmosphere. <laughs> um, so to suddenly, to make this film and reconnect with everyone and, and, and have these friendships suddenly re-emerge decades later um, has, is so special and is so tied up with the kind of theme of the film, I think. Let's start with the interview process. Did everybody remember this vividly, or is this like every every story that one person remembers one set of events one remembers another one remembers something else and then you gleaned down or was or is what we see exactly what each was remembering i mean i guess what i found out was that making a film about a pile of lies <laughs> is really <laughs> difficult to, to, to find the absolute truth so i can't sit here and tell you that this film is the absolute truth but it's as close as 30 pupils and teachers can <laughs> could manage. Um, and uh, yeah, and then with, with such a distance of time from the event itself too. So yeah, and, it's, and it, the film is absolutely a kind of, it's almost a lesson in memory mm-hmm. because I think we show that memory cannot be trusted. It can't even, it can't be trusted. It can't, branding can't be trusted and neither can your memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's what, what the film does. Well, I think we really see that when you get some actual footage of the time and of the school play thrown in there. That is one of the most interesting aspects of the film, and we're not going to give any spoilers away. That hits in the third act, and that's a really big aha moment that will have people gobsmacked. My jaw dropped. My jaw dropped at that. You get to this point in the kind of uh, release process where I, I've sat in on the screening of the film long enough so I go off and have a coffee or a beer or whatever, but I always come back to that moment <laughs> because I can tell, I can judge an audience on how they respond to that to that moment. And how you respond, it totally differs. Um, it actually kind of differs on how old the audiences are, to be honest with you. I think it's, it's really shocking for younger people and and it, it can be quite amusing for older people. Or, or I don't know, that, that, that's the way that I perceive it. But um, I, I definitely see a generation gap in how people react to that. And that's interesting because now I'm now 64 and I just, my jaw dropped and I'm like, holy crap. Uh, <laughs> when that footage... <laughs> people will be like, what are they talking about? But... See the movie, and then there's a moment. We're baiting everybody here so that they have to see the movie now to know what we're talking (laughs) about. When did the idea of animation come in? Because this is just so fun. It's the colors, the style of 90s animation. You really bring the whole vibe of your 90s high school experience to the fore here. So I'm curious when you decided to go with animation. Yeah, so the answer to this is really, you won't expect, but the answer is the animation was the very, very last thing we did. <laughs> the film was cut. And it was, um, the storyboards were in place. You know, I thought we were going to be filming with actors. Initially, I thought we were going to just straight up shoot period reconstruction scenes, but then someone explained what that meant budget-wise. <laughs> and, um, and then we, we tried a thing. You know, we had a really great animation team, actually, a, a, a Scottish company called Wild Child. 
And we tried this thing where we filmed actors on green screen and then rotoscoped over the top. And it looked really visually arresting, but it was quite kind of disturbing and sinister to look at. It wasn't the feel that I wanted. And then I basically had this, had the brainwave basically that, you know, it, you know the storyboard you cut was working. Um, so what if, if there was a way to animate those? And then I had the realization that, well, actually, when Brandon arrived in my high school class, you know, the door opened that there was this big curly hair with glasses and a monotone North American accent. Um, he was Daria. It was the 1990s. He was this icon of, uh, of, of 90s animation, MTV's Daria. So um, those, those animations are definitely a nod to that. And then when we spin back to earlier in time, um, I, I, I'd been looking at the Archie show and Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I knew that the, 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 the plot is quite complicated to follow at points, although in a fun way, but I wanted to do that in a fun way. And so I wanted to make it as visually clear for everyone as possible. And yeah, the animation team just did an amazing job of, of making that happen. The animation is spectacular, and and the animation is so good. We really can, as you're watching the film, you start recognizing each one of the students as an animated character, which I really loved. But then that brings us to the greatest thing of all about this film, Jono, is what you and Alan Cumming have done. This is so creative, so inventive, and I honestly can't think of any other actor that could have pulled this off as well as Alan does with him playing Brandon Lee, but lip-syncing the the voice of the adult Brandon Lee to the interviews that you did with him. Wow. How did this concept come into play in your design in your constructing of the film? I like so Alan has a long history with this project, longer than, than with this story really I should say. Um in that back in the nineteen nineties he was set to uh, play Brandon in a movie that he was also going to direct. Mm-hmm. Um and that, that movie fell apart and never happened. But I was always aware that it was meant, meant to be this Alan Cumming as Brandon Lee movie. Um, so when the time came and when Brandon had this line in the sand where he would only do an audio interview, um, I was aware of a, an earlier lip sync documentary called The Arbor by Kyle Bernard um, that had really successfully done that with multiple actors. And I was just really intrigued as to what it would mean for uh, a big name actor basically to take on this challenge. I, I guess I haven't really seen that done. And um, and I knew I was in safe hands with Alan. And in a film about going back and reconnecting with your, your past self, who better to play Brandon in my film than the man who was meant to do so, you know, 25 years before. Mm-hmm. And of course, Alan has such great experience with high school films and reunions. We've got Romy and Michelle, we've got Circle of Friends. So this is perfection for Alan to do. Yeah, isn't it? And isn't it funny, like with Romy and Michelle, that there you go, there's two, two characters who go back to high school and completely reinvent their story. Um, you know, it's such a, an enduring theme. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of certainly my nightmare to wake up and be back there again. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I find that really fascinating. And I absolutely tried to infuse the film with kind of high school nods. So we, we have... Um, uh, an actress called Claire Grogan, who is um, the lead, she's Gregory's girl in the Scottish high school movie of the same name. Um, uh, and, uh, and we have Lulu, yes. <laughs> a star of To Serve With Love, who plays our deputy headmistress um, and sings our title song, the Dan Track, My Old School. Yeah. Um, and so 
uh, yeah, I just I, I wanted I, to me it was a high school movie that I was making, but I wanted to kind of permeate that through the film. You brought in all of these great touchstones to remind everybody this is a high school movie. Even though people are now, they're in their 30s and they're looking back, it's still a high school movie with people like Lulu. I was tickled, tickled to death that Lulu was the principal and also sang the song just as she did in To Serve With Love. That was a real treat for me. I'm curious, Jono, you know, this is your first feature. You are known for your documentaries, your episodics. What was the learning curve like for you? Because this isn't just a first feature. It's a personal story. You lived it. You've got animation thrown in. And then Alan's this incredible technical feat, which is not easy doing lip sync to that much dialogue and cutting and pasting. So what was the learning curve like for you to make my old school? I mean, I get there were certainly points at which I thought, why on earth did I not just make a podcast? That was, I'd been finished four years ago. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I plugged on. I was determined to make this high school movie. And so I plugged on and just tried to... I mean, what people are responding really well to this film. And it's not... I, I, like, I'd love it to be through my own great genius, but it's not. I was just presented with obstacles at every turn, and I had to figure out how on earth to get around them. So what you're seeing is just me trying to figure out problems. Um, I guess that was what I learned, was that, you know, I, I wasn't, I'm never going to make Citizen Kane, but I could probably find my way out of a maze, and, and that's what I seem to have done. So one last question for you then. As you went back and you reflected and you heard all of your former classmates talking, was there one memory that jumped out at you about your high school experience, be it involving Brandon Lee or not? I'm curious if this sparked a memory for you that you had totally forgotten about. Um, gosh, uh, I guess what um, it revealed to me, I guess it's, it's such an interesting thing to make this film in the time that I was making it when the Me Too movement was happening and you know we were becoming a lot more aware of, um, of, of the, the challenges that, that people experience in life um, and, I, and that in, inevitably permeated the film and, and um, I, you know I was talking to the girls and stuff about their memories of school and how kind of creepy basically men could be around high school girls I just was so oblivious to all of that um, and you know there's kind of there's certainly an element of, 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 of that that's that represented a little bit in this film um, so yeah I guess that was it it was my I, I, it, the revelation was that I had kept my head down at high school so much because I had my own secret I didn't want anyone to know that I was a 16 year old gay kid that I was oblivious to everybody else's sort of um, stories basically I was oblivious to Scotland's biggest hoax a few days away and I was oblivious to everybody else's troubles because I was so focused on myself and you are as a teenager you know when the Brandon story broke and my friend my friend Ross phoned me up it wasn't talk, it wasn't the first thing he told me you know he phoned me and was like John you'll never guess who Carol has snogged up at the park oh and by the way Brandon is not who we think he is that's how it went because as a teenager you're so self-obsessed yeah that's what I realised I'm so glad that all of this came back to you, that you made this film, because it is so much fun, Jono. It is, it is truly, it is hilarious, and 
everybody who watches it, you're going to think back to your own high school days. We didn't perpetrate hoaxes like this, but everybody's going to think back to their high school days. Job well done. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Debbie. Oh, thank you, Jono. And hopefully we'll chat again in the future. Excellent. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Jono McLeod, writer, director, former student, and real-life experiencer of this uh, Brandon Lee situation in Glasgow in 1993. It's a fun movie. And as I said at the top of... Watching it, you're you're going to think it's a narrative comedy. But, uh, I mean, that's a testament to Jono's ability as a filmmaker. And he does come with an extensive background in documentaries uh, in the U.K. So uh, this is a wonderful transition for him as a filmmaker. But it's just a lot of fun. I can't encourage you enough to see my old school. And uh, I understand... Uh, through a classic film friend of mine down under, uh, it will be screening at the Melbourne Film Festival. Uh, it's available here. My old school is available here in the States now, but it is still on the festival circuit uh, down in Australia. So for everybody down there, check it out if you can. It's well worth your time. And now something else is well worth our time. We're going to get a little funnier here. And welcome the fabulous Genevieve Adams to the show. Hi, Genevieve. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to have you. Um, I laughed throughout this entire film. Simches and <laughs> That's Sorrows. Great. That's what we want to hear. It wa- and, but what made me laugh the most was your performance as Agnes. You are so funny. Thank uh, you so much. I just so thoroughly enjoyed the character of Agnes, uh, the foibles of her life, and your performance. <laughs> you get the greatest looks on your face. Um, <laughs> uh, almost like a hapless kind of look of, all right, yep, my life's a disaster. Yep. <laughs> this is not what I thought it was going to be. I can't get an acting job. <laughs> I'm pregnant. I'm breaking up with my fiance. Yeah, he wants me to convert. Yeah. Why, why do I have to convert? Um, it is so, this is so well thought out. And this is actually came from your own experiences. That you it did, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. Truth is stranger than fiction. Um, Indeed. Talk to me about this. It's like you're, you were engaged to uh, a Jewish man um, and, and the whole issue of Jewish person, non-Jewish person came up. What made you take your experiences and decide, hmm... This is fuel for funny. I think I'm going to write a movie. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, I started writing this film when I enrolled in an exploring Judaism class with my now husband, 
Um, and there were just so many, uh, obviously, and more subtle, funny things that happened to us in this class. So many characters, interesting characters that we met that it started writing itself. And I just started uh, jotting down funny things um, in my notebook in class and then developing these comedy sketches based on it. And slowly uh, it evolved into this kind of full-fledged screenplay as I realized there weren't only, you know, funny uh, comedic uh, elements to it. There were also some profound and, and sensitive mm-hmm. ones that would that would lend itself well to a, you know, dramatic arc. So that's sort of how it started in, uh, in real life. <laughs> well, you know, as you developed this, was, and you finally had this put together in a script, was it your intent to direct this? Was it your intent to star in it? Because that that's a big thing. Because you are in 90% of the film, if not more. <laughs> um, oh, God, yeah. You know, what... Um, where did that... How yeah, did I mean, that I've always develop? been someone who's a writer-performer, I think. So it just kind of came naturally, and it seemed I had entrusted other people to direct work that I've written before and I had never done it myself and I'd actually gotten the question a lot why don't you direct your own work because it's so personal and so this time around I was like you know what I'm gonna put my big girl pants on and I'm gonna direct this one I was really I was intimidated about directing and I didn't want to be the boss of whoever everyone was looking to for answers so I I think on my previous work I was scared and then I just decided okay uh, I'm 30 plus years old I'm gonna do this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, one of the great things is, all right, you know that you're going to be in it. You're directing it. You've written it. You've then got to put a cast together. And I have to tell you, one of the great standouts in your cast is Hari Neff, who plays Rabbi Cohen. She's fabulous. Yeah, she's incredible. Yes. She is a real standout. And you mentioned, you know, profound moments. M- so many of the mm-hmm. profound moments come from her character of Rabbi Cohen. And she's not like any rabbi that I've seen before. Uh, she, you know, yeah, she's um, she's unique. She's And Hari is just such a unique and specific and versatile actress that, you know, we were just so excited when she came on board. And she really delivered what she promised and, and then some. Uh, we worked together on the Yom Kippur sermon on writing it to make it as relevant as possible and to dive into some of those very sensitive issues that Rabbi Cohen discusses about Israel and Palestine. And um, Hari really gave me the courage to go there and to dive deeper. So I'm I'm just eternally grateful to her and for her you know performance that will live on. Well, the Yom Kippur sermon is it is very profound uh, and it's very moving. And it speaks volumes that everybody can benefit from listening to. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, that's what we were. That's what we were hoping for. So it's always good to hear. You definitely achieved that. That sermon, in and of itself, should be sent to like politicians near and far. Uh, Thank you, Debbie. That's uh, really it, nice. It really. It's you set it out very succinctly, and what everything comes down to is being human, being decent. Exactly. That's yeah. Hari and I spent a lot of time working on it, so I'm really happy that it came across. And uh, we really wanted to try and you know have it be thought provoking without it being polarizing, um, because we thought that's what Rabbi Cohen would do. So we tried to 
to make it um, as specific to the character as possible. And I think with Hari's help, we, we did achieve that. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, no, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. And I thought that was really one of the high moments of the film because you get a whole story shift following that. Um, a big story shift. Stop laughing. I know you're laughing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I actually wasn't. I was listening. <laughs> um, but huge story shift happens after Yom Kippur and this service. I'm trying to remember what happens after the sermon. Um, things start to go, uh, get a little skewed for Agnes and her fiancé, Levi. Yes. Yes, it's a bumpy ride, though, the whole way. But I guess... Um, it, it gets more, more bumpy and skewed <laughs> after Yom Kippur. Um, especially when Agnes... As it does, you know. Yeah, well, you know, and come on, you know, Agnes had to get up in the middle of the service because she had a call back on a role, on an yeah. acting role. You know, that... I know. Every actor out there would have done the same thing, I am sure. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I tried to make it as true to life as possible, so I, I agree. That would, you know, it's not every day you get you get cast as Charlene the crack horse, so, <laughs> you know. When you're pregnant. When you're pregnant. it's, it's Stranger things have happened, though, in, in the real world. It's all written from, you know, see, my own lived experience. <laughs> see, this is what makes Agnes so funny, and this is what makes this film so resonant, Genevieve, is, you know, these are things that, yeah, I know people who would do that. I know actor. Yeah. I know actors that would do that. I know actors that are bartenders that have been behind the bar, and they will get something about, "Oh, can you be here for a callback?" And, "Oh yeah, I gotta go." Yeah, so and they walk just, right out, and they walk out, and they go. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. So to see, I did that once. For <laughs> I was in working in retail, and I got a call that Ang Lee needed me in Atlanta, and I just left. Uh, you know, got on a plane. I, I would have done the same thing if I were you and Ang Lee needed you. Yeah, it's Ang Lee. That's right. You know, you've got your priorities straight. Agnes had her priorities straight. You know, fa I think so. I, I think, think so, so too. Of course, fasting was not a smart move for Agnes. Fast, no, not fa a smart move. Fasting and feigning. Um, but I have to say, you have. Well, some she likes to try and prove things to people. You mm -hmm. know, like that she can really do things and sometimes that's where the comedy comes from that is exactly where the comedy comes from sitting in her agent's office which those scenes are just an absolute scream an absolute oh scream. thank you uh, well julie halston and greg are amazing and greg is a really good friend and we've loved each other for some time so to be able to work together was so fun and he's they're both just excellent so but, you know, all of these moving parts in Agnes's life, because Agnes has her life, Agnes has everything pretty much the way she wants it and the way it works for Agnes. And right. it's Levi who wants her to change, 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 change. And, yes, Agnes loves Levi, wants to marry him, and wants to change, but does she really? Because to change is to yeah. change so much. And this is a big question that any couple faces. It's like, do I really want that piece of paper? 
do I really want to be tied to you? Do I really want to have to, (laughs) you know, clean the house so your parents can come over? Do I want to take my Christmas tree down so they don't see a Christmas tree? Not like they are shopping on, you know, on Main Street. Uh, Yeah. Well, I think when you get married and or you decide to live your life with someone else, you discover a lot about them that you didn't know before. And you also take on their whole family (laughs) uh, becomes your family. And so that's a whole process as it as it should be and would be, you know, Um, you know, as fully formed people, we we take on another family and you become part of another tribe with all its little secrets and ways of communicating and it's you know secret languages that you haven't known since you were a kid and you have to adjust to and adapt to and figure out and so that's always right there's so many films about this time you know about getting married about the what lead what leads up to it because it's so um it's so ripe for disaster and discussion and so many people can relate to this experience of feeling like a fish out of water in someone else's family well and what's so interesting is agnes's own backstory of spending 13 years in catholic school which i the humor of spending 13 years in catholic school and then getting engaged to a jewish man i find extremely funny uh i don't know why (laughs) but i do uh and yeah it is i think it is funny i mean i find it funny too and that that is i went to convent of the sacred heart so i i did go to catholic school for 13 years and ended up marrying a jewish man and it it is funny because you realize how much of religion is just performative and how at its core a lot of religions are really the same or they're they're trying to preach the same thing which is you know love your neighbor and love yourself and be kind and leave the world a better place than you found it it's sort of you know should be the underlying message of of most religions. So I think that's sort of what Agnes discovers is that that's where the meaning is um, in doing those little things for each other, take, making those little sacrifices for the people you love. And um, that's what, that's what we tried to get across. Yeah. And you can make sacrifices without sacrificing your whole tribe and your whole belief. Exactly. And I think that's what Levi learned. Levi really needed to do a lot of learning in this film. Uh, in this story and Thomas McDonald does a wonderful job as Levi but there are moments in there man I just wanted to slap him (laughs) (laughs) I know I feel like I I should have written him I don't know maybe I should have softened because that wasn't my intention but I think once you learn where he's coming from and and how ingrained I think you know, I wrote it from real life because a lot of Jewish men I know have this very real anxiety about marrying non-Jewish girls, even today. And you think non-Jewish women, that's so archaic, you know, it doesn't, I remember good friends of mine saying they would never marry a non-Jewish woman in college. And I was like, what? Um, The fact that that's still, that anxiety persists means that, you know, there's a real, uh, mantra that's perpetuated and that is drilled into these boys as as children or it was for my generation so I, I remember being shocked by it too um, and I think I've heard a lot of people being very surprised by it but a lot of Jewish men have this pressure well and this is where you you excel with your storytelling because you bring in the older generation who instill these fears so we, right. we have Levi's father, who is very significant. We ha- in this film, 
from a story perspective. We have Agnes's grandfather, who is a total joy and who has such an exuberance for life and living as things are. You know, you just, mm-hmm. you, you plow forward. Um, exactly. Just to see the difference in the older generation and what was imbued upon, you know, Agnes and upon Levi by their respective elders. It's really mm-hmm. fascinating to watch how you structured that. Well, thank you. I have... Um been lucky to have wise, you know, older figures in my life, like my grandfather, who was a huge, um, you know, inspiration to me and role model. And so that's where the Nate character came from. But yeah, I do think sometimes when you're young, you, you plow forward and think you're always making the right decisions. And then, you know, you need these moments of resurrection of like, and often it comes from older people just bringing you back down to earth. And so in my own life, I've, I really benefited from the wisdom of the elders. So I, <laughs> I uh, thought that would be a nice touch. And it just sort of those Mortimer and um, the Nate character evolved out of that, you know, my real experience and, the, and just um, the knowledge that old people know a lot, you know. Well, <laughs> and, and sometimes they do. You're lucky in this film they, they do. do. Um, <laughs> but then what you also do that really just endears you to Nate, you cast John Cullum. John Cullum is oh, such an amazing character damn. actor. Oh, my God. I will watch him yeah, in anything. He's, anything. He's, he's incredible. He lives up to all, all of the hype that he so deserves. I had grown up seeing him on Broadway and just being in awe of him and when I heard that he not only liked but loved the script, I was like, I think I cried. Um, oh. And I just, you know, I worship the ground he walks on. So I, it was a pleasure to work with him, and he's just a delight on screen. So, Well, you know, once you get this story done, you've got everything cast, then you've got to worry about the cameras are going to roll. How did you, what was your process? First time feature director. How did you go about breaking this down? Obviously, you worked closely with your cinematographer, with Daniel Cantaldo. Uh, the cinematography yeah. is beautiful. Uh, it's, yeah. It looks well, Daniel, authentic, Daniel lived in. He's a beautiful human. You know, so what was your process um, like from the production standpoint in developing your visual tonal bandwidth that would complement your emotional tonal bandwidth? That's a good question. I mean, I... I, we had limited time and resources, so I always think an independent film, you have a process, but that process ultimately comes down to just getting the job done mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and putting the camera where it needs to be and <laughs> uh, attempting to capture the action because there's a lot going on beyond your control. A lot of locations that suddenly are asking you to leave because you're not paying <laughs> them enough and, you know, <laughs> um, actors that don't show up or, you know, it's just it's a chaos. Anyone who's made an independent film knows that it's very loosely organized chaos but daniel and i did have time to prepare and because of covid um the film got delayed so i did have time to shot list and and really think about how i wanted the film to look um and i knew i wanted it to um you know have some rich saturated color and i i really wanted it to feel cinematic and feel very new yorky and feel very 
um, you know, true to my aesthetic and, and how I see the world. So, um, we did, we used a lot, we used, I created a lookbook in lockdown Mm -hmm. that was really useful to us with a lot of scenes from my favorite films. And, um, we, we did, we talked about each scene and, and we did our best to execute that vision. But, um, you know, as I said, it's also a lot of spontaneity and thinking on your feet and figuring out what will work, uh, based on the, the circumstances. What were some of the films that you drew inspiration from for your lookbook and the look of this film? Uh, Rushmore, mm-hmm. a lot of Wes Anderson films. Um, there's a film called Prime that I don't know if a lot of people know, but uh, Ben Younger wrote and directed it, and it's just a great New York romantic comedy. We looked to that one. Uh, Keeping the Face, which is a classic uh, film, favorite film of mine. Um, trying to remember, Daniel had his whole list of references <laughs> as well, and I'm trying to remember what those were, but we, we talked about a lot of different films and out each scene we kind of you know mapped out um and tried to blend our 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 likes and dislikes and um but ultimately we both wanted to create something that was realistic and visually stimulating and exciting and also uh you know aesthetically true to to us and and our style so within the you know time constriction so it was uh it was a challenge but daniel's a, a very talented man so it was you know, it was great to have someone like that to bounce your ideas off of and to work with. Well, I love the fact that you do have some saturation, uh, some great color saturation, especially going on in Levi's parents' home. Um, there's a warmth mm-hmm. there with those woods, with the books, um, with everything. And you feel old world. So you feel the yeah. tradition. Oh, good. You feel that tradition that his dad is, is like, has pounded into his head his whole life uh and then in the synagogue during yom kippur i mean the the golden the golden notes in there just really warmth and it really um was a double-edged sword to in the respect that you've got the golden warmth though but it's also almost like a cloud hanging over Mm. And if you walk outside of that, you're going to lose that feeling. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, well, we definitely wanted to challenge people with that, and I do think it's warm and inviting at the beginning. And Rabbi Cohen purposely, you know, makes people laugh and brings them in and then, you know, delivers sort of a a bit of a punch um, to, you know, make her point. Um, so I definitely think with the dolly shot and with how we lit that scene, um yeah, that really helped accentuate sort of the the discord between where it starts and where it ends. Mm-hmm. And and of course the apartment, you know, <laughs> Agnes and Levi's apartment. It's white. You've got windows. You've got a patio. Which, ah, uh, the patio and the setup out there of the little tent was just gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, we wanted it to be modern and kind of different from the other, uh, from his more traditional parents' house. And so, yeah, it all, it it came together. And and I think visually the film is is, uh, interesting to watch for sure. Mm -hmm. And of course, even Nate's house, the bedroom, Nate's bedroom. Yes. I'm so glad you appreciate that. Oh my God. That Um, I think it's wide open. The person whose room that is, is a lover of art and, um, 
a really interesting uh it's a really interesting couple a friend of a friend so um we're really lucky to get that i mean that's beautiful because you have a window there so you've got light coming in you've got space in the floor around the big huge bed that looks like an ebony wood that the bed frame um very very dark and heavy so it looks almost like an ebony which is old. Nobody makes ebony wood bed frames anymore. Uh, so we get that sense <laughs> of of age and tradition on Ag- on Agnes's side of the family as well as on Levi's side. But Levi's mm-hmm. parents' home is a little more closed in than Nate's room, which is much more open. Uh, I think. Yeah, interesting. I never actually even thought of that. That might just be a coincidence. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm glad it uh, resonated. It really, it works so beautifully. Now, were you uh, editing as you went? Did you wait till all your footage was accumulated and then sat down with your editor to start Yeah, I had cutting? no time to edit while we went because I was just, every day I would just collapse and... <laughs> <laughs> fall asleep mid sentence. Um, so we just tried to get through the actual shooting, and then uh, we worked on editing afterwards. But my editor Joe um, did get dailies and saw, uh, wa- you know, was watching as we were working. So that helped, I think, him uh, start to conceptualize and, and you know mark the takes that, that we liked. And well, I'm curious since since Joe is getting uh, dailies from you. Were you getting any feedback during the shoot about you might want to get a coverage on this, you might want to get a coverage on that, or did he leave you alone to your own devices? Um, he, he he left me alone pretty much, partially just because he didn't have time to give me notes. But <laughs> we, um, Daniel and I were a team, you know, on set and then in post, Joe and I really got down to, to business. So it was... Um, Definitely a team team effort on both ends, but we we tried to keep it separate just because I was in Agnes mode too, and I it was hard enough to to do all that. So I just I couldn't. I think I would have had a, a nervous breakdown if I tried to edit it during. <laughs> well, but here you are. You're in Agnes mode. You're in director Genevieve mode. You're in director Genevieve. You're in writer Genevieve mode. Uh, you know, how did you juggle all those hats uh, and I mean, the big question is, did actor Genevieve really pay attention to director Genevieve? <laughs> no, she never listened. She was the worst. Oh. Uh, God, never work with her again. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I was great. I took all my notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, all joking aside, you know, when you write something that's so familiar to you and so real for you um you know the acting can become sort of muscle you know it, it's like you just turn it on and right. you can turn it off and um you know the lines a lot of your work as an actor at least in my experience has been you know trying to make the, the words yours and and spending a lot of time you know paraphrasing and i studied meisner so I did a lot of work on like how to make text my own. And when you wrote it, (laughs) you have an unfair advantage. So in ways it is harder because you're doing so many jobs, but it's also easier because you have the insight of the person um, who wrote it in your own head. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed doing all of those things. I, 
you know, it's a privilege to be able to. And so I just tried to focus on that. And a lot of people want to do this and I'm actually getting to do it and I should try and enjoy it. And um, so, so I really did. And I, I think they all feed each other. You know, there's not like, it's not like they don't, you know, each job doesn't help each other. It really, it really does. And um, the energy kind of builds that way. And I think at any time you're on an independent film set or doing something creative, you're never just doing one thing. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to, to wear different hats. So how precious were you with the words on the page? Was it hard to kill your darlings? Did you have to kill your darlings? In, or once your director's hat was on and you had to keep the show moving? I think there's some things that you really don't want to lose and that you fight for, and then there's other things that you let go. Um, but, you know, when you have really good actors that you cast, they, they either make it their own or say, hey, Jen, what about this? And usually, if it was better than what I had, I'd say, oh, my God, that's better than what I had. Go with that. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'll take credit for it. <laughs> um, so I did, and I did work with a lot of really talented, comedic, you know, improvisers. So uh, I was really lucky in that I, my name on, is on it as a writer, but they had a lot to do with, um, you know, the sharp kind of quick comedy. And, and there were definitely a lot of moments where I let them take the lead and I just said you know do you because Greg Bellow is hilarious and Billy Calder is hilarious and it uh it's really fun to watch actors in their elements well you know you talk about the quality of the actors you have I have to tell you you worked with kids those kids <laughs> scene stealers scene stealers yes as Agnes's young that was, students. That was I wanted it. Yeah. Oh my! They are incredible. The young actress who plays Sparrow, off the charts, off the charts. I know she's not only adorable but like smarter than me, and she basically like helped direct that scene. She'd be like, "We'll put." If we had a question about continuity, she'd remember exactly, you know, the way she did it in the last take, and like could re replicate it. I mean, she was such a pro. She made all of us look. Like amateur. Oh, I mean, the art scene where they're painting and talking about color and artistic style. And it's just like, oh, my God, they're 40-year-old midgets. And <laughs> they were brilliant. Brilliant. I agree. Well, kids are, you know. They yeah. don't have the inhibitions that we have. And they're, they're freer with what they say. And I think they're just as smart most of the time. And they're like little sponges. Um, uh, yeah, so I, it was really fun to work with them. But and I have to say, I think the most adorable, endearing scene in the entire film is when Agnes is playing the dating game with the kids, and we have Miss Mustache and Mr. Robot, and just <laughs> hilarious. Well, and the actress I, who plays Miss Mustache was actually in my theater games class when I actually taught. Um, kids, oh and wow! She always said to me, "If you make your movie, because I had been trying for." to get the movie made you have to cast me in it and i said i absolutely will and i did and she's wonderful oh my all of them but that scene they just melts your heart watching them the cuteness is the cuteness rating is off the charts um yeah i think so too just amazing most of that was improv you know i just you don't write kids you tell yeah. them like this, this scenario and i mean although the the uh, scene where they're painting was written but um, they also had some great moments of ad-libbing. That doesn't surprise me. 
because they they looked yeah. like they were having fun, and that's a testament to you as a director when you have kids, and some you can tell when they're acting, Thank you. and you know yeah. it comes across. These kids were having fun. They were having well, fun. Well, we genuinely did. I remember <laughs> it was like midnight and we were all eating candy and we had the bag of costumes and it was just, it was very silly and very fun. Um, and, we had a great, the kids came and, you know, everyone had a better time. I mean, it's stressful for sure um, and it can be a challenge, but ultimately they, they bring so much joy and, you know, spontaneity and uh so it was just, it was a very joyful couple of days. And you gave kids candy at midnight. You know, <laughs> as you do. Well, uh, the parents course. were fine with it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's because they were there working. They weren't going home to sleep. So I know I started to feel so bad. And then we, just, you know, you got to get crafty. You got to get some good crafty if, you have, if you're working with kids that late. <laughs> so you've been on the festival circuit. So well received. Um, Jewish Film Festival is going on right now. Is the film still screening in the Jewish Film Fest? We had our screening. You already it had it. Really well from my sources. I wasn't able to attend, sadly, but I heard it went really, really well, and people were um, enthusiastic, so that's great. And we had a wonderful screening in Bentonville, and we are going on to Cinequest in August. When uh, Do you know when you're screening in Cinequest? So people... Yes, can, I can do. check out the film before the big release in September. Yes, yes. Our first screening is August 20th at 9 p.m., and the second one is August 23rd, which is a Tuesday, I believe, at 11.30. And this is all in person in San Jose. Um, yay! And the, the film comes out. Yay! Uh, Gravitas acquired the film, and it will be coming out on all VOD platforms on September 20th, and it will have a um, short... Uh, limited run at the Lemley Theater on September 16th. Lemley North North Hollywood Lemley. Yes. Yes. Uh, on the 16th. I mean, this is spectacular. This is such a fun fun film, Genevieve. I love it. It's got heart. Thank you so it's much. got humor. You are you shine. I love oh, Agnes. That's really nice. I love this character of Agnes. <laughs> you know, Agnes is the person that you want as your friend. Um, oh well, that's the best review I've gotten so far. That really, that's just wonderful. Thank now, you so much. Do you have any? Are you working on anything else right now, or just riding out Simkas and Sorrows? You know, I'm 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 thinking about another idea, and I have something that's in the works that I'm writing. Um, but yeah, it, it is hard to do both at the same time. I will say because I do feel like I'm still giving birth to this one. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been really exciting and I just, I can't wait to make another film and, and there definitely will be another one. So stay well, tuned. After this one, I can't wait to see your next film. I can't Aww. wait to see your growth as a storyteller and a filmmaker. Thank you Because so much. you hit all the right notes here. Um, you gave, Thank you, Debbie. You gave us a solid story, entertaining and insightful characters, um, beautiful visual tone um just well done on every level and you know you know this I, phone call is making me feel so good <laughs> thank you i'm really you know hearing as an artist to hear the people 
respond to your work and enjoy it that much is just, you know, it, it fills you up and it makes the, the hard work of, of being an artist worth it. So I really appreciate it. Well, Kim will be the first one to tell you that if I thought it sucked, I would tell you and tell you why. <laughs> She would, yeah. Kim would tell you. You're both straight shooters, which I appreciate. We've known each other, I think, almost, God, I think almost 30 years now. I'm not sure. Um, But it's been a a long, long time that we've been working together as publicist and critic. So, no, she knows. But, no, this is just every level. You hit every beat. This belies, you know, an indie first-timer. It just... So well done, and I think everyone should see it because they will thoroughly enjoy it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh. That's a really great endorsement. Oh, Genevieve, thank you so, so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. I would love to. It's been a pleasure. Oh, an absolute joy, and you have a great rest of your week, and, you know, good luck at Cinequest at the end of the month, and we'll be on the lookout for September. When everyone can see the film. Yay! Thanks, Genevieve. (laughs) Thanks, Debbie. Bye-bye. Have a great night. Bye. And that was Genevieve Adams, writer, director, producer, and actor, lead actor in Simcas and Sorrows. Cinequest, the end of the month, but then September, everybody can see this film, and it is so worth seeing. And let me just look at my calendar here because, um, yeah, no, that's right. September 16th is a Friday. The 20th is a Tuesday. So you get theatrical if you're in L.A. and want to go to Lemley, North Hollywood. Uh, and then if you just wait until September 20th, VOD and digital. But I will remind you all as we get closer to the date about this film. Another film. Very quickly before we sign off for the day, um, if you haven't seen it, a love song. Dale Dickey and Wes Studi, leading romantic actors in this film. They have both been supporting players, Dale, decades as a character actress. That you, She has graced every genre, including the MCU, Iron Man 3, Breaking Bad on television, uh, Spooge's woman. Uh, she has been a constant source. She's even part of the Taylor Sheridan, you know, family. She was in Hell or High Water, which Taylor wrote. Dale is phenomenal in this role of a love song. It is poignant. It is beautiful. And we are talking an award-worthy performance. Her name must be in the conversation for Oscars this fall. See the movie. It's out now. And uh, I understand it may be expanding wider in theaters in the coming weeks. So, uh, and my exclusive interview with Dale is already up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. So check it out along with a bunch of other new interviews that are up there. So that's all the time we have today. Next week is a jam-packed show with multiple live guests. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah. <laughs>